0: Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 16, The Memory Game, which originally aired in May of 2017. In this episode, Derek and I discuss Stranger Things Season 1 and the science of nostalgia. So hop in the time machine and enjoy episode 16, The Memory Game
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones.
0: And my name is Laurel Hostak.
1: Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Remember the episode where I said I wasn't going to go see Marvel
0: movies? (laughs) Yeah, I do. Yeah,
1: I think it was, what, episode 15? We're on 17, 16 now. I'm, I'm losing track.
0: It was two episodes ago either way.
1: Okay. Well, we usually record a few ahead. So I said that Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is out. I haven't seen it yet. And this is really, really, really hard for me.
0: I imagine it is.
1: It's not easy. It's breaking
0: your heart a little bit, isn't it?
1: It it kind of is. You know, a friend of mine sent me a text message about the, sh- the the show, the the movie Guardians of the Galaxy two, and said it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it knows what it is, and it was enjoyable and really funny. And I thought, man, that's part of the problem. And man, yeah. I want to see that movie. Yeah. All at the same time, and it's a tough thing for me to say. I'm not going to go see a movie by. Arguably, my favorite movie makers right now. Clearly, in my favorite movie genre, which is comic books, and uh, not see a sequel to a movie that I love. But I'm holding in there. I feel like I feel like I'm quitting smoking.
0: I applaud your courage, and I will still. I'm so brave. Support you if you decide to go and see it, and just, I'll go and see it with you.
1: Just keep telling me how brave and courage and courageous I'm I so am. So brave. Uh, but you know, it got me thinking. Um, you know, I kind of railed pretty hard on Marvel and I do feel bad about it in part because I, Marvel's given me so much joy. So I don't want to be a Marvel naysayer. Um, But it made me think about the word nostalgia.
0: Nostalgia.
1: Yeah. It made me think about that.
0: I have a question for you. Sure. Do you think nostalgia is a good thing or a bad thing?
1: Yeah. It's, you know, like anything it's in the context. Yeah. So I'm a nostalgic person You know, as I'm recording this, I'm looking at my collection of Star Wars and Batman and Harry Potter and Doctor Who toys.
0: Memorabilia.
1: Yeah, that are just there to, you know, have nostalgia. So, yes, I'm a person that feels nostalgia and sometimes it can really lead you, especially when it comes to content consumption, to a place not, how am I going to phrase this, a place not worthy of your time or energy. Wow. But since it hits that nostalgia chord, you go there anyway. And I don't know if that's good or bad.
0: I think that's a good way to, to introduce this topic. I, um, yeah, we started thinking about doing this episode and exploring nostalgia in the context of storytelling. Uh, when we released the episode a couple, couple weeks ago called cha-ching, where we were talking about the intersection of art and commerce. Um, And we really started to explore the idea of sequels and reboots and adaptations and and really take a look at why those things continue to be so prevalent in Hollywood and on television. Um, And we really wanted to explore how nostalgia is used in storytelling. And to do that, we had to go back and kind of learn about nostalgia itself.
1: Sure. And... I think we also both wanted to have a much more positive tone, like let's find an element where nostalgia and storytelling intermingle and it works and it works well. And it's it, it ends up, you know, making me feel like, man, it's talking to childhood Derek while at the same time challenging adult Derek.
0: Absolutely. And so I'll preface this by saying there will be a couple of spoilers in this episode for uh, a Netflix original that came out last year called Stranger Things. Hopefully you've seen the show. If you haven't, it's eight episodes long, and it's probably one of the best things that came out on TV last year. Uh, I would definitely recommend, you know, blocking off a day or two and getting through it because it really is a phenomenal piece of television.
1: Yeah, seriously, uh, Midnight Myth listeners, if you haven't watched Stranger Things yet, stop fucking around turn us off turn stranger things on
0: yeah you you can spend your time consuming stranger things instead of the midnight myth
1: and then come back to the midnight myth we allow and hear it we will allow, allow it all right so we this is i think the kind of the the structure that we've had barring any midnight myth boomerangs we wanted to kind of talk about nostalgia but really dive into a case study into stranger things episode 5 of season 1 the flea and the acrobat right and in particular, we wanted to examine how this one episode utilizes nostalgia in a way to serve the story, in a way to ground the story, to both satisfy, like I said, the child and nerd Derek, but also stimulating the the adult intellectual Derek, which I think this episode does perfectly.
0: And I think we are all Derek in this metaphor.
1: No, and this isn't a metaphor. I'm talking it's about myself. It's just about you. It's just about me and how that show sure relates to me. It's like no one else actually matters.
0: Oh, okay, cool. I'll just go. Uh, let's get in my time machine, guys. We're oh, going to go into history for a second. We're
1: going to go back in time?
0: We're going to go back in time for a second. So or I need some sound effects. Time machine noises. Yeah.
1: All
0: right. We're in the 17th century.
1: What?
0: Oh my God. Uh, So in the 17th century, the term nostalgia did not yet exist. Uh, We first saw the term emerge when there was a medical student who was examining Swiss mercenaries from war who were having such, uh, such horrible reactions to being away from home for a long period of time that they were becoming hysterical and breaking down in tears and depression and loneliness and sadness. Uh, there was such homesickness among these Swiss mercenaries that it was causing them to not function. Uh, and the medical student, the Swiss medical student said, he combined uh, two two terms from Greek, nostos, which means going home, and algos, which means pain. Uh, so the the pain of going home or a, a feeling of pain uh, at at the thought of home. Very similar to homesickness. But nostalgia, even though it was uh, coined as a medical condition that someone could have, a medical problem that you could be diagnosed with in this time, in the early modern period found itself becoming uh, a real romantic trope. So we saw it evolve pretty quickly into something that turned into this emotion that is kind of this warm and fuzzy feeling of remembering the past with however rose-tinted your glasses may be, but a fondness for something that is gone. And it, it differs from recollection in the fact that recollection is considered a you know a, a conscious effort. You think back and you pull up a memory from your little memory pensive.
1: I remember room. that yesterday I drove my car to the pharmacy recall.
0: Right. Or I remember that when I was a kid, I had to get shots and I used to run around the room.
1: Yeah. Nostalgia. Man, do you remember when we used to go to the pharmacy and take the car and then we would listen to music and it was like the best trip of our lives because we got to the pharmacy and we got Gatorade?
0: Yeah. So that and also you're taking a sip of Gatorade and all of a sudden, unconsciously, without you pulling up that memory... An involuntary reaction to the flavor of that Gatorade or the smell of a CVS when you walk into it reminds you suddenly of that feeling of being there with your friends uh, and and going back to that time that was so important that might have been trivial at the time but you look back on with a fondness and a a smile
1: right often
0: tied to to sense memory so. Triggered by sensation and mostly um, I think the, the biggest triggers for it are scent and music.
1: Yeah. So let's be clear that I would say that in television and film, it is the definition of artificial nostalgia. It is someone trying to create that feeling that happens organically or nat- nat- naturally. Wow. Natch. I almost said nationally. But anyway, that's not a word. Naturally. So it's that feeling that happens naturally when we'll go with this you know, really dumb metaphor of the pharmacy. When you take that sip of Gatorade, suddenly you feel nostalgia. It's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. Well, in TV and film, they try to create that scenario for you so that you can walk into that nostalgia door. And I think of Stranger Things in this episode actually does that quite beautifully in just like small references to things like Mirkwood, which is the forest in the Hobbits that we hear referenced in the show a handful of times. Yeah. In the posters in the room of what's the teenage- Not, no, I wasn't thinking of Nancy. I'm thinking of Will's older brother.
0: Oh yeah, Jonathan.
1: Jonathan. So like the posters of Evil Dead. Yeah. In Jonathan's room where you're thinking like, man, I remember like hanging up crazy posters that annoyed my parents that made me like- You know, for me, it wasn't an Evil Dead. I had a white zombie poster. Right. But even right then, boom, I didn't start this thinking about that white zombie poster. I just mentioned the Evil Dead poster, and then that memory just popped right up. Yeah. But I think the thing that makes this episode, episode five, The Flea and the Acrobat, is that the nostalgia uh, sets the mood, but what drives that episode is the explanation of the interdimensionalness of the show. Absolutely. Should I put some context to what that means for those that may have not seen the show?
0: Yeah, yeah. I do recommend, if you haven't seen the show, pause, watch, and come back. But let's do a little bit of refresher for those who have already seen it and those who plan to see it.
1: So the show takes place with a group of, of boys um, in the 80s.
0: In Hawkins, Indiana.
1: One of them disappears. And the show is kind of about, you know, figuring out what happened to the kid that disappeared in this particular episode, the main protagonists, which are his best friends and this mysterious girl only named 11 who has psionic abilities. So she can move shit with her mind, which is pretty fucking awesome. Right. And um, so they're trying to figure out where will might be because through the character 11, she's been able to use her psionic abilities to have Will communicate so they know Will's alive. And there's this massive conspiracy to say that he's dead because there's an evil government agency.
0: There's a fake body.
1: Well, the main yeah. the main point of this episode is to explain how multiple dimensions could exist simultaneously and how things might be able to transfer between them. And then they they layer this within the drama of the show. So there's this great scene that they're at their, their friend Will's funeral because everyone assumes he's dead because there's a fake body. And in it, the science character is explaining the theory of the multiverse.
0: Yeah, he's actually their their A.V. teacher. He's like the president of the A.V. club, right?
1: The audio video club, yeah. which is also another like point of nostalgia. But anyway, and he explains that there is a uh, flea and an acrobat. The acrobat is on a tightrope that is us in reality then there's a flea that can walk on all the different sides of the tightrope.
0: Yeah. So if we can only move forwards and backwards, then the flea can also, he can go forwards and backwards, but he can also go underneath the rope or on the side of the rope.
1: Yes. Thank you. And in that, there's this other dimension that the character Will is trapped in. And there's also a monster that's hunting them. So many things happen in this episode, but I think... The crux is we as the audience member for this narrative to get right now, like kind of towards the middle end, episode five of an eighth season, we need to start understanding what's actually happening so that we can ground this show and figure out some way where Will is, what's happening, what's real and what's not. This show gives a theory to it, which is the flea and the acrobat is the theory. But in order to get us there, man, it surrounds us with this like, This web of nostalgia.
0: Absolutely. And multiple times we've talked about how it was described uh, by folks who watched it. What did we say? It was a a Steven Spielberg meets Stephen King. Correct. Yeah. So you. And and that's a
1: really good description of the show.
0: Yeah, it really is. But it's a really good description of the style of the show, I would say, and not necessarily of the story. While there are elements that are echoed from Stand By Me and elements that are echoed from E.T., uh the story itself is remarkably original. And I don't know anyone who would who would dispute that.
1: You know they, they'd be fools.
0: They would be fools.
1: Tweet us on the midnight myth and we'll take you down. <laughs> I just invited the internet to come at us. That was probably a bad decision.
0: We'll go back and edit that out. We won't.
1: <laughs> no, it'll be in there. Take us on
0: internet. This is getting
1: good. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. So in my rewatch of this episode, looking for specific pieces of nostalgia, I counted 12 different instances of either physical or like physical nostalgia. Like, um, for example, when they mentioned Merkwood, the evil dead poster, the reference to Bambi that one of them makes. So direct references to pop culture. Right. Or uh, visual nostalgia shots that were designed specifically to look like other pieces of of film or TV, like the boys walking. Um, at one point, the boys are going on a hunt, looking a for their friend, yeah. and they're on a train track, and it looks very much like the Stand by Me, the very famous movie from the eighties. Right. So, in the span of the you know forty-five to fifty-minute episodes, uh, able to count twelve references of direct nostalgia,
0: and these are twelve references to pop culture. This is not even to count like the, the moments of just triggering the, the nostalgia of those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s. So riding your bikes with your friends after school, like that that might call back a movie that we saw, but it also calls back a, a time in our lives. Uh, and so there's, there's multiple layers of what's going on here. And another reference I'll even put out there is just in the casting, you know, to put Winona Ryder in this context, already says so much uh to bring in a, a star of so many of our favorite 80s movies and to put her in the context of being the kind of older generation of uh of a movie that or a, a television show that's kind of reinventing those 80s tropes is really potent we see her in the funeral scene and we're like oh it's heathers you know we we go there but For then those- we also have those specific moments that call back to our own lives
1: Then I counted the Heather's moment for those of you that have not seen Heather's awesome eighties movie. I don't know about awesome, but twisted eighties movie. It's awesome. Yeah. About Winona Ryder and Christian Slater are their lovers in high school and they do nothing but kill people.
0: It's so good. Yeah. They
1: just like kill all the peoples, but yeah. And Winona Ryder who then plays Will's mother in this. So she's the grieving mother uh, looking for her son who has disappeared And uh, plays heavy in this episode as well. Yeah, so there are multiple layers in which I think they've used nostalgia. And do you you think at any point they overdo it? Do you think it becomes destructive to the story where we're feeling nostalgia as opposed to paying attention to what's happening?
0: So I have heard the criticism of Stranger Things, that it relies too heavily on nostalgia, that it's derivative. And I... I do not agree with this criticism because I have seen much more derivative works that rely uh, solely on references and rely solely on nostalgia. And I, what I find is that in Stranger Things, what we get is almost less nostalgia and more a form of intertextuality that allows us to provide context for a story that is really foreign and a story that's really new.
1: So big word there intertextuality right i think we should deep pack that a little
0: yeah so what i'm really talking about is simple uh it's it's the idea that the uh, the art or the the literature that you're taking in is informed by the art and literature that has come before and that if i see a scene with you know a, a handful of young young men and women walking down a train track in the 80s, dressed a certain way, in a certain context, I'm going to go back in my mind to when that happened in Stand By Me. And I'm going to remember that when that happened in Stand By Me, there was danger associated with it. And I know that the filmmakers who are versed in Stand By Me are going to know what that shot calls to mind and so it's going to brew in me some kind of discontent and that's just one example i'm i'm also you know feeling that the moment when the boys are are talking about dungeons and dragons the veil the veil of shadows with their av club teacher that's going to make me think not only of playing dungeons and dragons in the basement but also of which i did yeah but also of donnie darko when Donnie is confronting the teacher played by Noah Wile, Noah Wiley uh, about time travel. And the teacher is telling him about time travel as though it's this theoretical thing. So it's going to take me back to these moments and inspire me to think, okay, what could be coming next? And also ground this, this story that is like totally crazy. It's about a 12-year-old who is a subject of, you know, psychological testing because she has Telekinesis and the ability to jump between the multiverse and influence the world based on her ability to jump between dimensions. And then suddenly, one of the kids from this town goes missing in this other dimension. Like, that's crazy. That yeah. story's crazy.
1: It's really out there. And if
0: you fed that to me in like some futuristic universe, it would be the subject of a mystery science theater episode. Like, it would be ridiculous. But when you ground it in something that I know and you give it context and you, you give me moments where I'm like, oh, that reminds me so much of this. Yeah, it reminds me so much of that. It eases me in more comfortably to the, uh, the supernatural or the preternatural context of the story.
1: Yeah. I, wow. So yeah, I think I, I tend to agree with you about that. I don't think they overdo the nostalgia. I think. They absolutely, by they, I mean the guys that created the show, the Doofer brothers, pardon me if I didn't say their name right, I think they absolutely wanted nostalgia to be a big hook.
0: Absolutely.
1: And in that respect, it could be viewed or seen as manipulative because they said, hey, there's a lot of Derrick's and Laurel's out there that are going to get a kick out of this setting, out of these scenes, out of these characters making these references. But I think... That's like, I'm okay with a hook as long as you take me someplace new or different. And what we see in this episode in particular is it's where you mentioned how the character 11 can, you know, bend space time essentially and go into an alternate dimension. Well, this is where we learn how this entire other dimension got sort of like mixed in how the veil of shadows and our realm became one. It's because that she's part of a government agency that knew that she was telekinetic and that were attempting to use her telekinesis to spy on Russians. And in doing so her mind opens up a portal to another dimension. And I think putting it in that sort of framework, that sort of story framework where it's like, well, in the eighties, if the government knew kids could open up their telekinetic abilities to spy on Russians, they'd absolutely create this fucked up, crazy, top secret. Totally. Like, you know, like in the 80s, you're like, you totally believe that because in that time is the height of the Cold War. Right. I we'll say the height, the sort of dwindling down towards the end. It's still, we're in the middle of a Cold War yeah. where every advantage to spy, cheat, and steal from your enemy because you can't go into a actual hot war, you can't actually attack Russia... But if you can use psychic kids to spy on them, wouldn't you do that? And wouldn't be protecting that secret? Because if it gets out, the Russians might find out and they might get their own spy kids. So you'll, you'd will you rather kill Americans than let this secret get out, which is a, the context of the show, I think is super important. So I think, and then if you're already going to be there, if you're already accepting that premise and the kids are already playing Dungeons and Dragons, well, if you're a kid in the 80s playing Dungeons and Dragons and you don't know what Mirkwood is, then you're not playing Dungeons and Dragons correctly. Right, right. So it's like, to me, it's like they they opened up this door to make, like they use nostalgia to make it more believable. Of course, Jonathan, the older brother of Will, who goes missing into the Upside Down, who is this really weird, kind of artistic, but kind of stalker with photography, you know, like can't really connect to anyone Of course he has an evil dead poster in that time. Right, He should have an evil dead poster. If he didn't have an evil dead poster, I'd be like, where's this kid's evil dead poster? You know, because they're (laughs) drawing on these archetypes that I think they do so successfully.
0: So here's another thing I'll say about that. And I thought that was really good analysis. But uh, in addition to the the sort of... uh, I would say that the context of the time, the sociopolitical implications on the time that this actually takes place in, you also get uh, a mechanic that allows us to invest greater stakes in the characters. And that's that, you know, so this, this story very easily could have been lifted out of this and put into a Marvel movie context. Like it could be a Marvel movie about, uh, you know, the 11 character who's like one of the X-Men yeah, that's easy. Right. You know, you could you could do that and you could put that in the not-too-distant future. I keep making Mystery Science Theater references and I don't mean to, but you could put this in the not-too-distant future and have her be a superhero who has these powers but kind of can't control them. And, like, we would all enjoy the ride and there would be tons of violence and it would be crazy and amazing and you'd have really sexy actors playing all the characters and it'd be great. We'd have fun. But... What happens when you put this into the context of what happened in our childhood, and Netflix is smart. They know who's watching Netflix most commonly. They know it's that 18 to 35 market, and it's people who grew up in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. You just
1: made me sad there, because I will soon be 36. Isn't
0: that crazy? But 18 to 40, it's the 18 to 40 market that's watching Netflix. Thank you. And they know that a huge portion of them grew up in this time or indulged in these movies and these books and these references. And so by grounding it in your childhood, putting that superhero narrative into your childhood just made you invest so much deeper into these characters and what happens to them. Like Will, Nancy, like I'm Barb. I'm totally Barb,
1: except you're 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 not.
0: I was Barb in high school.
1: So for those that don't know, Barb is the sort of uh, I think they're juniors in high school is the um, the one of the main characters, his older sister, Nancy's best friend, who is kind of like her best friend's kind of cool. And her, her, but you know, it's like the nerdy sidekick for lack of a better term.
0: Right. And, and Barb has not quite yet grown into her looks and Nancy has. And so Nancy's getting attention from boys and Barb is kind of the goody two shoes friend. And like, I was that in high school and I had my Nancy who like got hot way before I blossomed into anything and was, you know, getting all this attention from boys. And I was kind of, left in the dust. That happened to me. And a lot of people will identify with Barb. A lot of people identify with Nancy. A lot of people identify with Mike and so on and so forth. Yeah, and Mike, Dustin and Jonathan.
1: I, I was the Mike of the group.
0: Right. There are so many archetypes from our childhoods uh, that are represented in this show. And a huge part of that is just making those references, to be perfectly honest.
1: Can I go back to something that you said that little bit of a midnight myth style boomerang where we go do it into a new arena that we didn't uh, really plan on you mentioned the comparison to stranger things and x-men and that this show could be grounded in the x-men universe and we would accept that and it would be very palatable to us and that 11 would essentially be a mutant then right and that made me think is stranger things part of the superhero genre?
0: That's a really good question.
1: And part of me likes to say right out of the gate, all of these rules of what is what genre are fundamentally arbitrary. What do I mean by that? We've made all of this up so we can change the rules whenever we want. Right. You know, perfect example is what made in the nineties, what made a piece of music grunge versus alternative who cares? Right. Right? Like those are all very arbitrary. But understanding that there is a character in Stranger Things 11 who does have superpowers. Is the show then, because a character has superpowers, part of the comic book genre? Are we living in this place where the comic book genre is so big and envelops so much that whenever we have a superpowered character, does it belong there?
0: So this is interesting because I think I think that that is a really possible answer to what Stranger Things is. But I think that you have as much evidence towards several other possible genres to really prove that it kind of straddles a lot of lines. So you have a comic book genre uh, feel to Eleven uh, and to a lot of things that happened to her, but you also have classic monster movies to contend with. And you also have classic John Hughes or Steven Spielberg high school 80s movies to contend with. Um, And so there are so many genre references that you almost can't classify it as any of them, and it really becomes its own thing. Uh, You even get some kind of Doctor Who-esque multidimensional travel, of course. So it's very, very hard to pin it down as an existing genre because it pulls from so many different uh, spheres that we recognize but doesn't fit squarely into any of them.
1: Right. And I would also say, in addition to that, there was no Stranger Things comic book. Oh, well, yeah. To yeah. what degree does it have to come from a comic book? But then again, I don't think movies like 300 or V for Vendetta, to go down this boomerang a little further, who are both movies based off of comic books, are necessarily the comic book genre. Yeah. I don't think the show Walking Dead, which is based off of a comic book, necessarily is the comic book genre. So does it have to come from a comic book to be part of the comic book genre? Is an interesting just boomerang there.
0: Yeah. Woof.
1: I think you're right, though, that um, Stranger Things is a multi-genre, multi-layered, multi faceted show. I think that it uses nostalgia as the hook. And then gets us invested in great acting, great characters, and at the end of the day, a story that really keeps you guessing and wanting to see more and wanting to see what the hell is happening. It's this great mystery that you're trying to de that involves a small town, an evil government conspiracy, and an alternate dimension, and mm-hmm. a monster. And that's just episode five, folks. That's, yeah. We haven't spoiled anything past episode yeah. five. That's just what we know at the end of episode five.
0: And there's one more thing that I'll say about Stranger Things and its relationship to nostalgia. And that's that a lot of times here on the Midnight Myth podcast, uh, I at least, maybe not you, but definitely me, I will get really excited when things are references to other things, when, uh, when stories pull upon uh, existing tropes and existing um, mythology. And I think that's amazing. I really do. Um, And you'll hear me on this podcast be like, what's cool about this is that it happened here and here and here. Because the idea of the Midnight Myth is that maybe every story is one story and we're just retelling it over and over again until we get it just right. But what's exciting about Stranger Things is it shows that you you can still do that. You can still dabble. In the mythology, and you can dabble in the references that live in our cultural DNA, but you can make a story that feels really new. And that's what's exciting to me about it.
1: Yeah, it can have multi-dimensional monsters, references to Lord of the Rings and Star Wars.
0: And romance.
1: Romance.
0: And sex. And and Dungeons and Dragons,
1: and still be something that, at least for me as an audience member, was just blown the fuck away.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. I show. think
1: yeah, I think that's a really, really, really great point about it.
0: Yeah, um, and and we've talked about Stranger Things, um, and in this episode in particular, as a really uh, positive example of what happens when you can use nostalgia and intertextuality to help ground a narrative. And to help uh you know bolster something that is creative and new, and there are so many examples out there of of times when this really falls flat and it's disappointing to see because nostalgia can be such a positive influence um when creating a story and on life often it's really a defense mechanism against you know really turbulent times in one's life there's a reason why nostalgia is you know is seen most among young adults is because in the time when you're transitioning maybe out of college or moving out of your parents' house for the first time and everything seems up in the air, uh, it's like, okay, what comfort can I take? Oh, that time I went to the pharmacy and got the Gatorade. If we go back to that metaphor.
1: You think nostalgia is a defense mechanism?
0: There's a lot of studies that have been done on this. Nostalgia can really be used as a a kind of a safe place when you're feeling terrified of what's coming. And I think that that's part of how it's used in Stranger Things, is this is a terrifying thing that's happening to this town and these people. And so here's this sort of little lozenge of references to the movies that make you feel warm and cozy. Remember these? Because this is about to get really fucked up.
1: Oh, you dropped the F-bomb for the first time on the podcast.
0: Is that my first time?
1: I don't know, but it is now. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely. Wow. Um, so in that respect, then Stranger Things is nostalgia manifest. Right. It is the defense mechanism which shields us from the horrible things that happen and are going to happen in that show. I, you know, I don't know if I'm at a point where I'm ready to just accept that nostalgia is a defense mechanism. You know, that that seems just intuitively having done zero research about it and Mm -hmm. talking mostly out of my ass that 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 just seems (laughs) false to me. Like I feel nostalgic for something is usually a positive experience for me.
0: Well, right. Yeah. I'm not saying it's a negative experience by saying it's a defense mechanism. I'm saying that's why it might be triggered so involuntarily is because it's in response to times that are really stressful or really turbulent or are confronted by a lot of change and so you are suddenly flooded with the memories of things in the past that were good
1: yeah but since being in adulthood and having been in adulthood for uh, well over a decade at this point i felt nostalgia pretty consistently in times of my life that definitely had turbulence and even times now that are a little more steady and secure and you know unless I am subconsciously feeling dread about the things to come that I'm not aware of, you know, I feel like I get nostalgia, nostalgic actually more now where things are more stable than I did. Cause when things are chaotic, I don't really have time to reminisce. Now it's like, Oh, well, you know, things are going pretty decently. And I have a, I would say objectively a pretty great life. And in that I feel I'm more inclined to feel nostalgia, you know, I'm more inclined to sit around and watch stranger things and be like, ah, I remember those times played D and D when I was 12, you know, like, and I feel like it's interesting to hear that. And I guess maybe, maybe the, the, the proof is in the pudding. I wouldn't be pushing back against it unless it was in fact a defense mechanism. At least that's what Freud would say. You know? Yeah.
0: But Freud is super problematic. Um, yeah, but I no, no, I don't think that necessarily the two are mutually exclusive. I think it's a really complex emotion that we feel that's still being studied and still being figured out. But I think a huge part of it is the um, sort of resistance to change, I think, is big. And I think that's why we see it so often used as a manipulative um, tool in politics. I think that's why we see nostalgia used so forcefully by conservatives, is remember how good things were in the past? Let's make it that good again, regardless of the fact that, of course, it was much worse for minorities, for people in poverty, for women.
1: Or just in general. In general. Yeah.
0: But hey, let's think back to how great it was when you had your coal job, even though your coal job was probably the worst thing in the world. Remember when you had that cold job, we're going to do that again.
1: Well, I think cycling back to where we began, you know, earlier in this podcast, uh, we stated and we agreed that nostalgia in film and TV is intentionally manipulative. Right. And the question is, what do you do now that you have that manipulation? So you've used nostalgia to manipulate me as the audience member, and you've given me these, oh, these feelings. What do you do with it? Do you deliver the goods now that you have me in that hook and make a great story that I want to follow? Or do you just kind of pump out something that I will forget? It'll feel nostalgic and I'll feel good for a moment, but forget it. Similarly, similarly, similarly in politics, you know, someone that wants to use nostalgia as a rhetorical device to get you to vote for them well, that's okay. All right. So if you want to use nostalgia to get me to vote for you, well, I'm okay. I'll I'll be willing to listen. I'm not going to tune you out for nostalgia by itself, but like, what, what are you actually fucking saying? Right. Like, what are you actually going to do? What does this nostalgia means? You know, we talked many, many episodes ago about how every kingdom of Egypt wanted to recapture the glory of the old kingdom and they were utilizing nostalgia as a rhetorical device to make sure that they were more like that Egyptness, and that there was this idea of Egyptness. Well, I'm okay with this idea of Americanness and let's have nostalgia for what Americanness means as long as that doesn't mean I'm taking away rights or privileges or access to health or human services to someone else. Right. You know, if you're saying that, that that's the hook let's get into that level of nostalgia. Well, then it, it it becomes a point where I think us as audience members, in whatever medium or form, be careful and wary of nostalgia. It feels good. You're, yeah, it's you,
0: like a drug.
1: Yeah, and it feels so good, and you're going to like it, but don't fucking OD on it. Yeah. You know, if you're ODing on nostalgia, mm, it might not be a good thing. yeah. You know, it might not be a good thing because no matter what we, what happens, we are forced to live in the now. We cannot live in the past. If you do, it becomes pathological. And what do I mean by that? It becomes a disease of the mind. So we have to live in the now. So, and what stranger things does as the symbol of that is that it lives in the now it's a fresh new story that, Uses nostalgia as the door, and I'm okay with that. Open up the door with nostalgia, but give me something on the other side,
0: right? And I think what it comes down to at the very bottom of it is do you trust your audience? Do you trust your audience, or do you underestimate your audience? We're and talking
1: storytelling, not politics, right? Storytelling
0: or politics. Ooh, oh, oh, oh,
1: very cool. That is,
0: do I trust that my audience can handle something more complex than this, just the idea of, here's something that you used to know. And if I trust my audience, I make Stranger Things. If I don't trust my audience, I make Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And we say this out of not seeing it yet, but...
1: We'll say Ant-Man, because we've seen Ant-Man. I
0: make Ant-Man. Yeah. If I don't trust my audience, I make America great again. Well said. Yeah.
1: That was a bit of a drop the mic right there.
0: Should we play a game?
1: Uh, yeah, it got heavy and real. I think we should, it totally, always does. we should totally game this up. Awesome. All right, so you do the thing because you're better at it than me.
0: Awesome. So every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, we like to play a little game to lighten the mood or have a little fun with our characters and situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, And we would love for you to play along at home. So these are usually just pretty quick questions. Please uh, tweet us at The Midnight Myth on Twitter or www.midnightmyth.com. You can drop us a line on the contact form or search uh, Midnight Myth Podcast on Facebook and check us out there. Uh, So this week's game, do you want to tell us what it is?
1: Sure. I will gladly tell everyone what it is. So we're going to go and we're going to indulge our most nostalgic impulses in this game. You can go to any nostalgic TV, movie, uh, film, whatever you want to call it, event. And you get to live in that and you get to kind of live that story. So it could be, for example, I was a boy in the 80s and I could say, I want to live in who's the boss land. Right, And I could just be part of sure. that who's the boss land. Why that's not? not? That's not my pick. Just to get you to to understand the idea. So wherever was what you identify as kind of like your decade of your childhood. And I know most of our childhoods are not that neat. Like you're not always born in a exact decade. But whatever you want to do from your childhood, that sort of nostalgic era that you want to live in. Um, there's one kicker, one little side clause here. At least this is for myself and for Laurel. We can't choose anything Star Wars because otherwise we would both just choose Star Wars and we would know the answer. So we said no Star Wars. We have
0: a Star Wars problem.
1: We may just be obsessed with it a little bit. So barring Star Wars, what would you pick and why? Go. Am I first? I just explained the fucking thing.
0: Okay. So I'm picking something that probably none of our listeners have seen. But it came out in 1991. It's an animated film called The Princess and the Goblin.
1: Never heard of it.
0: Yeah. So when we came up with this game, I was like, I have no idea what what I'm going to choose. And then I was like, what's nostalgic for me? And then I remembered this one frame of The Princess and the Goblin that I must have watched like a hundred times a day when I was a kid because it's so burned into my memory. But there's this one shot in the movie where... They know the goblins are coming and then the pebbles on the ground just start to shake and you see the pebbles shake. And that's like the one shot of that movie I'll never forget. But essentially it's a it's a fairy tale about a princess named Princess Irene. And her kingdom is like infested with goblins and she gets kidnapped by the goblins and she has a tuxedo cat. and
1: We have a tuxedo cat. We
0: have a tuxedo cat. Um, he
1: has his own Instagram.
0: And it just like... I honestly couldn't tell you most of the things that happened in that movie, but every single frame of it, if I were to watch it today would just make my, my guts just like turn over and over and over again. Cause I just, it's so physically ingrained in me. I'm thinking about it right now and I'm so connected to it. The princess and the goblin. She's like a magical princess or something. Oh, it's amazing. Sounds great. Sounds great. We're going to watch that tonight.
1: We'll have to watch it tonight. So uh, I have to tell people that I kind of already lived mine in a very weird way. So I, I will tell this mm. story. So as a, uh, as a boy, my, my parents took myself and my older sister to Disney World in Florida. And then we made a stop off at Universal Pictures. While we're there, we took this sort of like monorail tour through a bunch of different things. And uh, for whatever reason, we ended up just sitting right up at the very front, right next to the tour guide. And in that tour was where Jaws would come up and try to bite you. And it was really like exciting and fun. And the tour guide was really nice. And like in between telling people things, he would talk to, to me because I was really engaged and just really interested and loved the fact that the tour guide talked to me. So at the very end of the tour, we all go into this auditorium. And the tour guide actually is running this auditorium now. We, I'm young enough. I don't know what's happening or why we're going to be there. But he goes, hey, we need a volunteer from the audience. Of course, I raised my hand. Oh, my God. But he'd been talking to me the whole time. So he picks me. So I then go up on stage and we go back and he's just like, listen, I can't tell you what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to bring you out on stage. I'm going to ask you what your favorite movie is. And you're going to say Rambo. And I'm like, OK, because it would be a funny joke. Sure. And and I'm like, OK, I'll, I can do that. And he's like, and then w- when you're done doing that, you're going to ride the E.T. bike. And if you've seen E.T., you ride the E.T. bike with E.T. in the basket and you get to fly. And he's like, and you'll get to fly in the bike. And I'm like, done. Yeah. So he brings me out. And he asked me what my favorite movie is. I say Rambo. Everybody laughs because it's just like an easy, cheap joke. And everyone knows I've never seen Rambo because I'm like five. Right. And then he puts me on the bike. And I'm riding this bike with a little ET and the ET music. And there's a screen behind me that has me flying through the air. And I got to fly through the air with ET in the basket. And I got to live for a very brief second in the ET universe.
0: Oh my god.
1: So I don't need to actually pick something for this game because I fucking lived it.
0: I can't believe you never told me that story. That's beautiful.
1: Oh yeah, my dad has the whole thing on I think an eight <gasps> millimeter camera. I don't know if he still has it. Because oh. for those of you that don't know, there's this little thing called Sandy and it destroyed most of the physical memories my parents yeah, had. Yeah. It's a massive hurricane. But yeah, they might not still have it. But yeah, I yeah, I was young and and it was A memory of mine that I will never forget. And I got to be in E.T. as a kid.
0: You got to be Elliot.
1: I got to be Elliot. And I got to ride E.T. to freedom.
0: Aw. Mic drop. Very gentle mic drop. So my pick is, I don't need to
1: pick one. I did it.
0: That's beautiful. Well, guys, I really hope you'll play along with this one. This was a lot of fun. Um... Yeah, we had a lot of fun talking nostalgia, talking stranger things with you guys. And yeah, we can't wait to be back with you again.
1: Until next time, be kind. Be kind.